0: This is the Tao of Christ, and I am Marshall Davis. In this episode, I will be reading Chapter 4 from my book, Experiencing God Directly, The Way of Christian Non-Duality. Chapter 4, God Inquiry Thank God for atheists. They have revealed God to me. Atheists have taught me more about God than any preacher or seminary professor. They have shown me what God is not and thereby pointed me toward who God is. I credit the books of the so-called new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Victor Stenger, and Christopher Hitchens, with helping me identify and reject false gods and thereby redirect me to true God. Especially former Christian preachers who became atheists, people like John Loftus, Charles Templeton, and Dan Barker, have deepened my Christian faith by pointing out the weaknesses of traditional understandings of God. These atheists are effective spiritual teachers because they are sincere inquirers into truth. They have investigated religious claims with uncompromising and relentless honesty. At the end of their inquiries, they have concluded that the God depicted by theistic religions does not exist. I agree with them, for the most part. In fact, I am a card-carrying member of the Skeptic Society founded by atheist Michael Shermer. I would not be surprised if I were the only active Christian pastor on their roles. I read Skeptic magazine religiously and agree with most of what it says. I do not believe in the God the atheists don't believe in. Atheist Richard Dawkins wrote, We are all atheists about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in. Some of us go one God further. I go one step further than atheists. I reject the atheist concept of God as much as the conventional theistic concept of God. But that does not make me an atheist. My inquiry into God, like my inquiry into the nature of the self, has led me beyond the human conceptions of God, to what Christian philosopher Paul Tillich calls God beyond God. The God of religion is nothing more than an idea in the mind. The God of most Christians is no more real than Santa Claus or the tooth fairy, albeit usually more philosophically sophisticated. Usually, but not always. The theistic God worshipped in most churches is no more than an imaginary friend, a deity made in man's own image. It is a construction of the human mind, a mental image. To worship a mental image of God is just as idolatrous as worshiping a graven image, and it is just as much a violation of the first and second commandments. The God of most theists is an idol. But God is real. The one God that Christian doctrines, icons, scriptures and words point to is ultimately real. But ideas about God are not. We must not mistake the words used to describe God for God to whom they point. There's an old saying, do not mistake the finger pointing to the moon for the moon itself. We must not mistake doctrine that points to truth for truth itself. Road signs along the spiritual path are not the destination to which they point. True God is without qualities and characteristics. God is without name. That is the point of the conversation that Moses had with God at the burning bush. God refused to give Moses his name because God is nameless. Even today, Jews will not pronounce the theonym YHWH, the revealed name of God. It is unpronounceable because it is unknowable. As the Tao Te Ching says, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the eternal Tao, the name that can be named is not the eternal name. Tao is the Chinese word for what Christians call God or Christ. When Christians first translated the Gospel of John into Chinese, they rendered the opening words, In the beginning was the Tao, and the Tao was with God, and the Tao was God. This remains the most widely used Chinese translation of the New Testament today. There are two basic approaches to divine truth. One is self-inquiry, relentlessly pursuing the question, Who am I? Until the answer is experienced directly and immediately. When we see who we truly are, we see who God truly is. The other way is to ask who is God. When we know God, then we know ourselves. The first approach is most commonly used in Eastern spiritual traditions. The second approach is found in Western traditions. And the equivalent question asked by Christians is who is Christ? There are two ways of understanding Christ. Christology from below, beginning with Jesus' human nature, and Christology from above, starting with his divine nature. When it comes to spiritual inquiry, East starts from below, asking, Who am I? West starts from above, asking, Who is God? When Christians ask the question, Who is God?, It is usually answered with the doctrinal statements found in creeds and catechisms, but those are second-hand knowledge of God. In the Old Testament, Job had a lot of second-hand knowledge about God. He was a very religious and moral man. So were his friends who came to comfort him when he lost everything in a series of catastrophes. Job's theology did not help him when he was faced with intense personal suffering. He needed more than religious answers. He wanted direct knowledge of God, so he made an intense personal inquiry. His search flows 36 chapters of the book of Job. Job asked question after question, and eventually he found the answer. As Jesus would later promise, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. A traumatic series of losses, the death of his family, the loss of his possessions, the destruction of his reputation, and alienation from his wife and friends, ripped away all Job's previous beliefs about God. So he battled in heaven's door until God answered. At the end of the book of Job, God finally appeared in a whirlwind and asked Job a series of questions. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? as Job 38, 2-7. These questions are the beginning of four chapters of unanswered and unanswerable questions posed by God. The purpose of these questions was to demonstrate to Job the impossibility of ever understanding God. They are designed to push Job beyond theology and theodicy into direct awareness of God. Finally Job gets it. His eyes are opened. He responds, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job 42, five. Job received no theological or philosophical answers to his questions and doubts. He received far better. He saw God. Paradoxical Pointers In non-dual Christianity, theology is not understood as a metaphysical description of reality. It is a description of the Christian experience of the non-dual nature of God. Theology describes human experience, not God. Doctrines are meant to push the Christian beyond thought to direct experience of God. Conventional Christianity has been known for its propositional theology, carefully distinguishing orthodoxy from heresy, but some central doctrines of Christianity do not fit that straitjacket. They are clearly meant to point beyond ideas. The two most important of these doctrines are the Trinity and the Incarnation. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity describes God as three in one, one monotheistic deity in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It attempts to combine Jewish monotheism with the Christian experience of God. God is experienced as both, both one and three. In explaining the Trinity, theologians make it clear that God is not a heavenly triumvirate of deities, That would be polytheism, which is the boogeyman of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. The church also rejected any explanation that explained the Trinity as one God using three masks or having three functions. Christian theology insisted that God is truly one, and yet also three. Of course, this is a logical impossibility. Like the equation 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1, that is not mathematically true. Neither is the Trinity true on the level of logic. The Trinity is meant to push the Christian believer beyond reason into a direct awareness of mystery. God is not known with the mind. God is the unknown and can be apprehended only by unknowing. Like a Zen Cohen The Trinity is a puzzle with no logical solution. Christian doctrines like the Trinity are meant to awaken the Christian to what is beyond the mind. It is not meant to convey information about God, but to lead to a direct encounter with God. Another such doctrine is the Incarnation. The Church spent much of the first four centuries of the Christian era trying to formulate a Christology that would explain the nature of Christ... In fact, the question, who is Christ, is just another form of the inquiry, who is God? The difference is that the Incarnation combines both the from-below and the from-above approaches. Because Christ was a human being, it is an inquiry into human nature. Because Christ is divine, it is also an inquiry into the nature of God. By combining these two approaches... The doctrine of Christ is the most important doctrine in Christianity. Like no other question, it effectively pushes us into God. But this needs needs to be a personal inquiry and not just a recitation of the Church's answer formulated long ago. Who is Christ? The Christian answer is that Christ is both God and human, truly God and truly man. From a Hindu point of view, those statements are not contradictory. and Therefore, there is no theological problem. A yogi would not break a sweat answering that question. In Indian philosophy, everything and everyone is divine, so there is no problem. Therefore, there can be no spiritual breakthrough. The Christological conundrum is not a paradox for those who believe that divine avatars are a dime a dozen. Hindu orthodoxy believes that the divine comes to earth regularly in human form to show the way to spiritual liberation. But for the western mind, the doctrine of Christ is a mind-bender. To say that Christ is both God and man is a paradox because human and divine are mutually exclusive categories. Christian theologians tried to solve the problem rationally. Some said Jesus was half divine and half man. Greek mythology had lots of such hybrids. Others said Jesus was God, but only appeared to be human. He left no footprints when he walked the roads of Galilee. Others said Jesus was a man who was adopted by the Heavenly Father and granted divinity as a reward for his obedience. All these approaches were eventually rejected by the Church. Christianity affirmed the paradoxical statement that Christ was both fully God and fully human, but that was impossible. By definition, God cannot be man and man cannot be God. It is blasphemy to equate the two. It was because Jesus claimed to be divine that he was accused of blasphemy by the religious authorities at his trial. For the Christian and anyone holding the monotheistic worldview, such as Muslims and Jews, the dual nature of Christ is a stumbling block, to use biblical language. It is literally a scandal, the Greek word is skandalon. It is meant to offend. It is meant to shock, to break down one's intellectual resistance until it is seen through. When one transcends the mind and perceives the impossible as true... Then Christ is seen as he truly is, and God is seen as he truly is. When one's eyes are opened, the two sides of paradox make perfect sense, even though it cannot be explained in words. The Problem of Suffering Other Christian beliefs have the same transformative power as the Trinity and the Incarnation. One of the most powerful of these is theodicy, also known as the problem of suffering or the problem of evil. This is the issue often raised by atheists as an argument against the existence of God. It is the problem confronted by Job during his personal experience of unjust suffering. Theodicy points to two contradictory statements that most theists make about God. That God is both all-powerful and all-loving. If God is all-loving, how can he allow suffering and evil in the world, especially the suffering of the innocent? It was stated in his classic form by the Greek philosopher Epicurus 300 years before the birth of Christianity. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil. Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? When the problem of theodicy is investigated honestly, one is left with three choices. With the atheist, we can conclude that the theistic God does not exist. Or if he does exist, he is not worthy of worship. This is the response of Job's wife, who advises her husband to curse God and die, Job 2.9. Second one can give simplistic religious answers, like the Friends of Job and the final editor of the book of Job, who adds a happy ending to this profound book. One can blame suffering on unacknowledged sin, blame the victim. One can blame evil on Satan, the devil made me do it. Or one can attack the questioner as being unfaithful to God for raising the issue. The third religious answer found in the book of Job and often voiced by Christians is that we must respond to suffering and evil with faith. When all else fails, one can always play the faith card. Just trust God that there is an answer to the theoretical problem, even though one does not see it. Believe that evil is actually good in disguise, that what appears to be evil is really God at work orchestrating everything toward a greater good. Everything is good when viewed from a divine perspective. In this worldview... The torture and death of six million Jews by the Nazis was part of God's good plan. Such an answer borders on the obscene when voiced in the presence of Holocaust survivors. Of all the religious answers, the most satisfying is a variation on this theme. It is the testimony of the Apostle Paul that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. But that variation on the faith card still falls short. It does not explain the suffering of those who do not love God and are called according to his purpose. It tacitly justifies the suffering of those without faith as somehow acceptable. It is really just a variation of the blame the victim answer of Job's friends. How about the suffering of infants? What about all the suffering of humanity before God picked the Jews to be his chosen people? Or before God sent Christ to be the Savior of the world? Upon close examination, this theological answer to the problem of theodicy also fails to reconcile a genuinely good God with the presence of innocent suffering. When one makes a thorough inquiry into the problem of theodicy, one confronts the reality that there is no good theological answer. When one sincerely and uncompromisingly investigates the Christian doctrine of God in the light of evil and suffering, one is pushed beyond all theological answers. Like Job, one is pushed into the presence of God. In presence, all paradoxes are resolved in oneness that transcends reason. Then the problem of suffering is seen as another pointer to truth. When one follows it to God, then the problem of theodicy falls away. In the final chapter of the book of Job, it says that Job repents. Chapter 42.6 The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which means literally beyond the mind. When one investigates the theological paradox, one goes beyond the mind. There in the eye of the theodical storm is peace. Is God personal or impersonal? One recurring question concerning the nature of God is whether God is personal or impersonal. Here we find different answers in the East and West. Christianity answers that God is personal, a Heavenly Father known through a personal Saviour, Jesus Christ. Hinduism says that God can be conceived of and worshipped as personal, but ultimately God is impersonal, absolute. The divine is understood in the East. ...as impersonal Brahman, which is identical with man's true nature as impersonal Atman. Non-dual Christianity answers that God is more than impersonal and more than personal. From a Christian point of view, to say that God is impersonal is to make God less than human. To say that God is personal is to say that God is no more than human... God is more than either philosophy. Meister Eckhart, the 14th century German theologian, makes the distinction between God and Godhead. God is personal to persons. God is impersonal to the impersonal. But true God, Godhead, is more than either. If one must use theological words, it is best to say that God is transpersonal or suprapersonal. God is more than is dreamt of in our philosophies, to paraphrase the Bard of Avon. In Christianity, this non-dual divinity is given expression in the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for spirit is feminine. There is a well-known passage in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, which portrays divine wisdom as a woman. In the New Testament, the Greek word for spirit is neuter. And yet it is often coupled with a masculine pronoun. Taken as a whole, the Christian scriptures embrace all three understandings of the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is impossible from a human point of view. The Holy Spirit refers to a God that includes personal representations, both male and female, and impersonal, and at the same time points beyond the duality of human thought and language, To the non-duality that is God's true nature. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You have been listening to Experiencing God Directly, the way of Christian non-duality. Next time I will be reading chapter 5, The Power of Negative Thinking. You can find my podcast at thedowofchrist.com. You can find my blog and a link to my books at marshaldavis.us. Join me next time for another episode of The Tao of Christ.